Welcome to the Ground Effect Podcast. My name is Brian Clough, and this is episode four, part three. In this episode, we're going to talk about pediatric intubation, non-invasive ventilation, and some special considerations when it comes to pediatric respiratory management. Let's start with pediatric intubation. First things first, why do we intubate? Obviously, if a patient isn't adequately oxygenating or ventilating, we're going to need to take control of their airway. Also, if a patient can't protect their own airway, or if there's a high probability that they will deteriorate, we should provide airway support. Lastly, some patients may need intubation to facilitate transport or allow for diagnostic studies to be completed. In my opinion, there are seven crucial steps that are needed when managing a pediatric airway for intubation. We need to plan, prepare, position, pre-oxygenate, administer pharmacological agents, perform the intubation, and then perform post-intubation management. First, we have to plan. Obtaining past medical history and allergies is important, especially with some of the medications we'll be delivering. Have they ever been intubated before, or is there any family history of malignant hypothermia? It's important to find this out beforehand. Remember, pediatrics have some differences in anatomy that we need to think about. Smaller patients usually have a more anterior airway, as well as a more rounded epiglottis. It's important to know the anatomy and what you're looking for, especially if you're unfamiliar with pediatric airways. If you have a checklist, which you should, make sure it's available and you follow it. Now do an assessment. Look for anything that may make this intubation difficult. If you go into each intubation with a mindset that it will be difficult until proven otherwise, you're much more likely to have first-pass success and be ready for when things go sideways. Lastly, make sure you have all the people you're going to need to perform this intubation. If you need someone more experienced or you want to have anesthesia ready, make sure you do that in the beginning before you need them. Next, we need to prepare everything we plan for. Make sure everyone present knows their role and when they are to perform their tasks. Check your equipment. Make sure monitoring equipment is working and in place. Ensure your O2 supply is connected and on. Make sure you have the right BVM and mask. Check your airways. Make sure they aren't damaged and are appropriately sized. Have a crate kit ready, whether it's needle or surgical, just in case. As with any intubation, make sure your laryngoscope blade and handle are working. If it's a videoscope and needs to be warmed up, make sure you give yourself enough time for that. Next, prep your medications. Make sure they are drawn up and labeled appropriately. Know the doses that are going to be administered and make sure the person administering the medications know the doses as well. Make sure you check your IV lines for patency too. A step a lot of people tend to forget is to prepare their suction. Make sure it is on and you know how to use the specific catheter you're going to use. If you need to place your finger over a hole to initiate suction, make sure you know that. Now that we're prepared, we need to position the patient for optimal success. Make sure the ear is in line with the sternal notch, the face of the patient is parallel to the ceiling, and if necessary, elevate the head of the bed. Make sure your position is correct too. Don't put yourself in awkward positions. It'll make the intubation much more difficult. Also make sure you're not hyperextending the neck. In pediatrics, it's easy to close off the airway with hyperextension. Once we've positioned, we can begin our active preoxygenation. Most likely you've had the patient on some sort of oxygen, but it's time to ramp it up. Place a nasal cannula and turn the flow up to 15 liters per minute. Put a non-rebreather over the nasal cannula and turn it to a flush rate. You can also assist the ventilations if they were inadequate with a BVM, but you still want to apply the nasal cannula under the mask. Do this for about 3-5 to five minutes to ensure optimal oxygenation and denitrogenation. Now is when we administer our pharmacologic agents. What you use depends on your protocol, obviously. If you can use DSI and keep their airway reflexes intact, that may be a better option. 
However, RSI may give you better success. Studies are showing different data currently outside of the OR. Make sure if you are using RSI, you allow adequate time for sedation before paralyzing the patient. Now we're ready to intubate. One tip is if you lead with suction as you're going in with your laryngoscope, you'll be able to clear the airway first and won't be looking for your catheter later and cause additional delays. When performing intubation, use a stepwise approach. Start by entering the oral pharynx, follow the tongue, and look for the epiglottis. If you're using a Miller blade, slide the blade over the epiglottis and lift. If you're using a Mac, keep following the tongue to the base of the epiglottis and slide your blade into the vollecula and lift. Once your blade is positioned, look for the larynx. Once you see the larynx, take your tube and intubate the patient. Although it's not always possible, try to visualize the tube entering the trachea. Once the tube is in place, make sure you confirm placement with end tidal and lung sounds. Remember, end tidal CO2 is the gold standard. Make sure you hit print on your monitor so it records a strip for proof of placement. Also, don't forget to ventilate for a few breaths to ensure your end tidal doesn't disappear, as it would if you were in the esophagus. Lastly, and most importantly, don't forget your post-intubation management. Make sure you secure the tube per your local protocol. If you have any secretions in the tube, make sure you suction them well. Also, don't forget your post-intubation sedation. If possible, try to start a drip so you can keep up with the sedation. If you can't start a drip, set a timer of some sort so you don't fall behind on your sedation and pain control. Lastly, adjust your ventilator. If you're unsure of the proper settings, head back to part one and you can review the settings there. Now let's talk about non-invasive ventilation modes in pediatrics. We'll start with the high-flow nasal cannula. High-flow nasal cannula is a special cannula that delivers flow rates that far exceed those of a typical nasal cannula. It's been shown in studies to work great in pediatric patients to prevent intubation. More and more hospitals are using it as a treatment for all different respiratory problems. So how does it work? So it works by washing out the nasal and oral pharynx and conditions the gas that's delivered by heating and humidifying it. It reduces resistance of upper airways by the increased flow. It also can create positive pressure in the pharynx to reduce work of breathing and prevent collapse. So when do we use high flow? So high flow is used obviously in patients with respiratory distress or dyspnea. This can be caused by asthma, bronchiolitis, or any other respiratory problem. Usually it's used in hypoxemic respiratory failure. It can also be used in patients with tracheomalacia or when pre-oxygenation or apneic oxygenation is required. Make sure that in the patients you use it on, the patients can maintain their own airways and that the patients are going to be able to tolerate it. Some of the equipment you'll need is a medical gas blender, a heater or humidifier, a circuit, patient interface, either a nasal cannula or prongs, the medical gases you're wanting to use, a flow generator or a high flow meter, sterile water, and a nebulizer if it's needed for the patient. Initial setup requires a temperature of about 37 degrees Celsius. Your flow rate is about 1 to 2 liters per kilogram per minute, up to a maximum for the age. See the chart in the show notes. FiO2 is based on the patient needs, anywhere from 21% to 100%. Your goal SpO2 is 94 to 99%. If the patient has an obstructive pathology, high flows coupled with lower FiO2s may be more effective. As with anything, there are some contraindications. Patients who cannot maintain their own airway, acutely altered mental status, patients with active vomiting, Patients with excessive oral or nasal secretions or patients with a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum are the main contraindications for high-flow nasal cannula. Now let's talk about CPAP and BiPAP. So CPAP and BiPAP provide respiratory support without the need for endotracheal intubation through a patient interface. The mode you use depends on the patient's need and the disease process. 
It can provide more support than high-flow nasal cannula and decreases the patient's work of breathing and improves respiratory gas exchange. Non-invasive ventilation works by decreasing the work of breathing by increasing mean airway pressure, helps to maintain patency throughout the respiratory tract, helps recruit alveoli, and increases the functional residual capacity and decreases the VQ mismatch. It also reduces complications since you don't need to use endotracheal intubation. So when would you use CPAP versus bi-level positive airway pressure? So CPAP, continuous positive airway pressure, provides a constant airway pressure throughout the whole respiratory cycle. It's also referred to as PEEP, as we talked about in part one. Bi-level positive airway pressure provides assisted ventilations. It can either augment spontaneous breaths or provide breaths at a set rate. It delivers two pressure, an inspiratory pressure and an expiratory pressure. So when do we use it? As with high-flow nasal cannulas, patients with respiratory distress and dyspnea caused by asthma, pneumonia, pulmonary edema, cystic fibrosis, acute chest syndrome, or patients where typical oxygen delivery devices are inadequate. CPAP is commonly used in sleep apnea and bronchiolytic patients. Bilevel is used more commonly in patients with lower airway diseases or those where higher mean airway pressures are desired. For equipment, you'll need a ventilated or a dedicated CPAP or BPAP machine, a circuit, a patient interface, which could be a nasal mask or a face mask, medical gases, and a nebulizer, if indicated by the patient condition. For initial settings, CPAP should have a PEEP of about 5. You're going to titrate this to achieve appropriate physiologic response, and your max will depend on your local protocol. Pressure of 8 to 10 centimeters of water have been associated with no hemodynamic compromise. Pressures above that can cause decreased venous return and hypotension. For bi-level positive airway pressure, your expiratory pressure is usually an initial setting of about 5, or whatever your PEEP would be. Your inspiratory pressure is usually between 8 and 10. With FiO2, you want to start at 100% and titrate to an SpO2 of greater than 92%. Again, the contraindications are patients who cannot maintain their own airway, acutely altered mental status, patients at risk of aspiration, or vomiting patients. You should use caution in patients with excessive oral or nasal secretions, if they have a pneumothorax or pneumomediastinum or cardiac arrest. You should also be careful in patients where increased intrathoracic pressure would be detrimental. Let's move on to some special considerations when it comes to pediatric airway management and respiratory management. You'll see in the show notes the pediatric assessment triangle. The pediatric assessment triangle assesses appearance, breathing, and circulation. It's developed to quickly identify potential conditions requiring immediate intervention. For the appearance, you should look for agitation, restlessness, combativeness, because these are all signs of air hunger and hypoxia. Also, somnolence and lethargy are late signs of severe hypoxia, muscle fatigue, and hypercarbia. For breathing, tachypnea is an early sign of respiratory compromise. Airway sounds, such as strider and wheezing, change as the disease progresses. One thing to remember is that absence of breath sounds is not the same as clear breath sounds. The sniffing position is usually indicative of an upper airway obstruction, whereas the tripod position is usually indicative of a lower airway obstruction. To assess circulation, we want to look at skin color. What's their pallor? Are they ashen? Are they cyanotic? These are all good indicators of circular story status in children. Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, or PARDS, is a disease process characterized by rapid onset of widespread inflammation in the lungs. Causes can be anything from sepsis, trauma, pneumonia, or aspiration. 
PRDs impairs the lungs' ability to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. For ventilation strategies, we use low volumes, anywhere from 4 to 6 milliliters per kilogram of ideal body weight, and we use high peeps. We also use a mode called APRV, which is airway pressure release ventilation, or inverse ventilation. A lot of facilities are beginning to go to prone positioning in patients. ECMO is also becoming a more common treatment of pediatric ARDS. And lastly, cystic fibrosis. Cystic fibrosis is a genetic disorder affecting the lungs, pancreas, liver, kidney, and intestines. Cystic fibrosis leads to secretions that become very thick and viscous. These thick secretions lead to difficulty in clearing secretions and lead to frequent lung infections. Some things you want to look for in children is poor growth, salty tasting skin, which they'll be able to tell you, poor weight gain despite normal intake, accumulation of thick, sticky mucus, frequent chest infections with coughing and shortness of breath. For management, it's very important to have proactive treatment of airway infections. Chest physiotherapy to release mucus is very effective. You also want to make sure that they have an active lifestyle. That way they improve their breathing status. Aerosolized saline has been shown to loosen the mucus and improve ventilations. You'll also notice percussive ventilation or oscillatory ventilation in patients in severe respiratory distress from cystic fibrosis. Now let's bring together everything we've learned in parts 1, 2, and 3 and look at a case study. You are dispatched for an interfacility transfer for respiratory distress. You call and get report en route, and you have a 9-month-old male who's 7 kilos. The nurse giving you a report states the mother brought the patient to the ER with retractions and wheezing. The patient was given three albuterol treatments in the ER, and the patient condition has improved. Vital signs currently, as reported by the nurse, are heart rate of 140, respiratory rate of 32, SpO2 of 95%, and a temp of 99.2. Blood pressure, they state they're unable to obtain because they don't have a blood pressure cuff small enough. Look at our quick reference card that's available in part one. We have a heart rate of 140, which is between the physiologic norm for a child less than one year old. We have a respiratory rate of 32, which is between the physiologic norm between 30 and 53. We're not sure about blood pressure since they weren't able to obtain it. SpO2 is 95%, which is pretty good for this patient. So what are we thinking? So as of right now, this patient seems pretty stable. We're not really sure what the treatment will be when we get there because we are unsure about the actual condition of the patient. When you arrive on scene, you notice the patient is in bed being held by the mother. The patient has blow-by O2 on via a non-rebreather mask being held by the mother. You notice substernal and intercostal retractions, as well as tracheal tugging, cyanosis, and wheezing. Your vital signs are a heart rate of 180 to 190, a respiratory rate of 58, SpO2 of 88%, and a blood pressure of 80 over 42 on your cardiac monitor. So what do you do? Going back to the pediatric assessment triangle, we want to look at the patient's appearance, breathing, and circulation. So for the patient's appearance, we note he's in bed being held by the mother. We want to note if he's lethargic or if he's agitated. In this case, he's very lethargic. For breathing, we note substernal and intercostal retractions as well as tracheal tugging and wheezing breath sounds. For circulation, we notice the patient is blue and cyanotic. So what are we going to do for this patient? Based off what we learned, know that we're going to have to intubate this patient. Since we know we have to intubate this patient, we have to make sure we go through all of our steps to successfully intubate. We have to plan and prepare, position, pre-oxygenate, 
have the correct pharmacological agents, and then perform the intubation and make sure we have good post-intubation management. Planning and preparing in the transfer situation are sometimes harder than in a situation where it would be either a 911 call or at your own facility. Sometimes you can't get all the staff you need, and sometimes you can't get all the equipment you need. The best way to prepare for this is to bring the equipment with you that you think you may need. Positioning this patient for first-pass success and pre-oxygenating this patient appropriately and adequately will make sure that you have your best chance of this patient not decompensating. Choosing a pharmacologic agent in this patient will all depend on your protocol. When you're performing the intubation, make sure you have everything you need because you prepared appropriately and make sure that you get your best first-pass success. Use things like bougies, video scopes, and anything else you may have that will make this easier for you. In a patient like this, you want to make sure that your post-intubation management is done correctly. Use the quick reference guide that's available to you or the checklist that you have or your protocols to make sure that you are using the correct sedatives or paralytics if necessary for this patient and make sure you set your vent settings appropriately. One of the most important things in this patient, like we talked about back in part one, is to not panic. Remember, when it comes down to any pediatric patient, regardless of what their complaint is, this is just another patient. Make sure you breathe, make sure you focus on the situation, and make sure you don't panic. If you panic, chances are the patient is going to feel that and interpret that, and they're going to panic as well. I hope that you were able to take away some new knowledge from this series on pediatric airways and ventilation. If you have any questions, you can always feel free to email us or visit any of our social media pages and leave us a message or comment there. You can also comment directly on our website. I'll finish out this series by saying thank you. Thank you for listening and thank you for striving to be better for your patients. As always, remember to stay safe, stay grounded, and everybody goes home. <laughs>